Hello, and welcome to this episode of Burn Your Draft, the podcast exploring the Reed College senior thesis process and experience. I'm your producer, Albert Corellis, and today you'll be hearing host Amelie Andreas talk to Reed chemistry major Kieran Wharton about his thesis on climate change education in high school chemistry. In his thesis, Kieran peers inside the classroom to see how teachers use the context of chemistry to familiarize students with the causes and effects of climate change. Take it away, Kieran. Hello, everyone. My name is Kieran Wharton. I'm from a suburb of Seattle, Washington, Redmond, if anyone knows where that is. A thesis in the environmental studies and chemistry departments combined. So I'm an interdisciplinary major. The title of my thesis, I don't know off the top of my head, but I believe it's something along the lines of incorporation of climate change in high school chemistry teachers' thoughts, beliefs, and barriers to teaching climate change. That is so awesome. I have teacher parents and I'm a STEM major, so this is totally like right up my alley. Fantastic. (laughs) So do you want to give us a little bit more of an in-depth explanation of what that looked like? Like, were you spending a lot of time in the classroom or... How did that how did that work out? Sure, yeah. It was a very non-traditional chemistry thesis, essentially. Mm-hmm. I was doing a lot of work in my room. <laughs> no lab work whatsoever. The main chunk of my thesis where I kind of collected the data from was interviewing teachers or in the, the Portland metro area. Mm-hmm. I interviewed them first. <laughs> and then I coded those interviews. So mm-hmm. that was kind of the collection of all the data. And the way that worked took up a lot of time because you have to first build the interview scripts. And then I did a bunch of mock interviews. And then once we got the transcripts back from the actual interviews, which took a couple months because of uh, teacher COVID strikes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so by the end, we had five interviews. I coded all of them twice, actually, oh. because we developed new codes using our code book. So it was a it was a, a, a little bit of a roller coaster, but it was good. It was a good experience for sure. What got you into environmental science, chemistry, and then some of these other education, linguistic skills that you might have been applying in your thesis? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I kind of always knew that I wanted to do environmental studies and chemistry coming into college. So that started in high school for me. I always was a more a STEM person. It just kind of clicked more with my brain. And I really enjoyed chemistry. I had a really good teacher and it just kind of fell into place for me, really liking it. It just kind of really clicked in my head. Um, but I also took AP environmental studies mm-hmm. and that was a really interesting class. And I just kind of knew I wanted to be able to focus on the environment somehow and whatever fashion that meant for me at the time with a focus in chemistry because I thought that that could be a good tool to analyze the environment essentially. And so the thesis process for me at least has started, I didn't know what I wanted to thesis in. First couple weeks, the way it works in chemistry, at least when you're a senior, is that you kind of walk through the chem department, you do an open house and chat with each of the professors and, and figure out what projects they're working on or kind of what you're interested in and see how they can kind of help work with that. And I've always been interested in being a high school chemistry teacher teacher. And so education is in the background in interest for me. Mm -hmm. And we luckily have this new professor, Nicole James, who does education research. (laughs) And so when I met with her, she was like, all right, you probably don't know a ton about this field, but what are you interested in? And I was like, okay, like, I think people should know more about climate change. And she was like, all right, let's build off that. And that's kind of how the conversation started. And then from there, we narrowed down what my interests really were, making sure that the general public knows the basics about climate change. And I found out in that couple of weeks of preliminary research that chemistry teachers teach 
climate change at the lowest rates along with physics teachers one hour or two uh, a year. Wow. <laughs> so I was like, okay, well, let's try and figure out why that is. That was kind of, I think, where it all started. And she helped me learn a lot of how to do proper education research. So that's not something that you do in a lot of your classes. And so like the norms are slightly different. And they, I have a lot of similar aspects, sociology experiments and things like that. And so that's, I think, where it leans, kind of, it mixes very heavily with the mm-hmm. chemistry fields. And so you kind of have to know about chemistry, but you're not really studying the chemistry, you're studying the social side of the kind of learning of it, which was an interesting process for sure. Not something I'd ever really thought about. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like there was a bit of a learning curve. Did you have any skills that you specifically acquired or strengthened during this process? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> a resounding yes. <laughs> yes. The way to practice and conduct interviews was, I think, the biggest thing that I've learned. I'm sure you've kind of <laughs> figured out yourself as an interviewer. But yeah, it's not as easy as people I think it is. <laughs> the thing I learned the most and actually kind of struggled with was giving the interviewees space to think and respond. And it made it also really difficult because I am a very active listener. It helps one, me listen because my brain kind of wander if I'm not fully engaged. Mm-hmm. So I like nod and go, mm-hmm, or say, oh, okay, yeah, that makes sense. But when that comes back in a transcript, <laughs> it's hard because every couple of sentences... I butt in. And so the largest transcript I have was 12 pages and it probably should have been three if it was just the person's text. Mm -hmm. And so that makes it kind of hard to code. And the coding is also something that I developed and kind of focused on a lot more. And I learned a lot about because I've done a little bit like a political science class here and there, Mm -hmm. but not to this degree (laughs) and not developing my own full-fledged code book. That took like three weeks. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. So you've talked about coding a little bit. Is that like using a programming language or is that more of a linguistic style, like sentiment coding? Kind of, yes. It's hard to, I think, explain without like a visual aid, unfortunately. The data that I got was uh, transcripts of my interviews, essentially. And so mm-hmm. anytime that the person talked, let's say, about their climate change beliefs, which was uh, kind of a theme that I picked up on from my interviews, mm-hmm. I would code that. So I would kind of highlight that section and give it the code climate change beliefs. Mm-hmm. And so I would read through all of the transcripts and I would code each of those sections as like climate change beliefs, whatever, whenever they would talk about that. And so that's kind of, I think, the process of it. It didn't use any program mm-hmm. at all aside from like one that helped the actual like process of it instead of using my hands <laughs> digitally. And there are ways to do it that have a program that you can have the computer code it for you, Mm -hmm. but that's not as reliable. And so I did it myself. (laughs) But no, yeah, it's it's kind of, I think the social scientists use it a lot. (laughs) Like whenever I talk to STEM people about it, you're like, wait, what do you mean you coded (laughs) interviews? So yeah. Mm, I see. Yeah. So you're basically taking all of these transcripts that are, you know, words, hard to do data analysis on and you're creating this system where you can code things by like sentiment or topic. And that lets you have data that you can actually like do analysis on later. Yes. Yeah. And it's, it's tough to do like statistical analyses on that. Mm -hmm. Because like I mentioned before, that one interview that was 12 pages, that one is really hard to code because I 
just essentially highlighted huge chunks of it uh, in different sections. I would highlight like small bits of this long paragraph that she would have talked about. But since I interjected during the conversation that made more codes of the same thing, so I could have like five codes that was the same sentence. And so you can't really do statistical analyses over that. And so what wound up being the thing is it really, it's just how to find the data essentially and the analysis is looking through and being like, okay, how many of the interviewees talked about their climate change beliefs? And we would go from there and be like, okay, so like 100% or just all, I would say more in words than the numbers, all of the participants talked about how they wish there was a separate class on climate. Mm -hmm. And so that would just kind of, it just more, it helps you find the data more so than like do Mm -hmm. statistical analyses on it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I'm trying to think now of what a nightmare it would be to go back and code all of the interviews I've done here. Did you encounter any other like unexpected challenges with like the writing process or maybe trying to wrangle all of this like quote unquote data that you got from from coding? Sure, yeah. Dealing with folks who aren't part of the read bubble, like you had to go outside of, of read to collect the data, you know, chat with teachers and ran into some troubles like getting teachers. <laughs> um, and so my my advisor was the person to like contact the teachers because they'll get more of a response from someone who has a PhD <laughs> than just some random kid who wants to chat. <laughs> yeah, I mean, every thesis always has infinite challenges. It wouldn't be a thesis without like never ending I think challenges. this is a relatively common challenge for folks, but mm-hmm. I wound up cutting out some stuff because I didn't have time to do it. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm actually going to do that research over the summer. Luckily, oh, that's but cool. The other main thing, Oh, so I didn't reach data saturation. So the idea of data saturation, at least, is that you collect data and you keep interviewing people. And once you start hearing the same things from the people you're interviewing, that's when you've reached data saturation, which is mean, okay, you've collected kind of the data that there is out there that people are chatting about. And so now... Like you don't have anything else to learn, essentially, mm-hmm. which is kind of the goal of a study, a series of interviews. That that can happen between anywhere between like three and fifteen interviews. Mm-hmm. I had five in my fifth interview where I was starting to reach data saturation. It felt like, and then my fifth interviewer <laughs> had a bunch of new points to it. Oh my goodness! Yeah, <laughs> so that's <laughs> one way I know that the research isn't done yet. Mm-hmm. But because of that, I developed a bunch of new codes for the code book, which meant that. I would have to go through and read all the other interviews I did to see if they had talked about anything that the the codes had found in my latest interview. (laughs) So that was when I went back and recoded all of the interviews. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And that's like a whole nother project. Like that's a whole nother year of work almost. Almost. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) I wound up having 191 codes. Wow. Yeah. You must've been so when you were doing that last interview, like simultaneously, ah, this is so awesome. But also can you... The writing process, I really don't like writing. <laughs> and so it was it was hard to kind of I procrastinated a decent amount on it. And it was both the hardest part and the easiest part at the same time because you just have to like sit down and do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's hard to kind of emotionally get at least for me, get yourself to do that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I wound up doing it pretty well, just kind of like chunking out each section. And my advisor was smart about it too. She was Mm -hmm. like, okay, 
do each section, I'll like proofread it. And then you'll like fix that section like right away, mm-hmm. as opposed to doing a whole rough draft and then editing the whole thing all at once. And so that, that made it a lot easier. <laughs> the other thing I was going to challenge with the writing section is that I've never written a education paper before. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so my advisor had to give me a lot of tips and say like, oh, you should write about it in this way or like, this is the norm for chem and research. Mm-hmm. There was this thing that even some of the folks on my orals board didn't know about, which is a positionality statement, which is essentially you put yourself into the, the thesis and kind of like, okay, this is who I am. This is what I believe. And this is kind of my own personal motivation for doing mm-hmm. this research. And so I might analyze this data differently mm-hmm. than somebody else because mm-hmm. I have these biases essentially wow yeah which i that's I, really cool yeah, yeah. i think more, i feel like that should be in every i paper. agree yeah, yeah. <laughs> but i didn't know it was a thing until this year because my advisor was like you need to write this mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah i'm hoping that it bleeds into other fields soon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm curious for my intro stats class, we were doing like statistical analysis mm-hmm. on which divisions write the longest papers and, you know, of course, STEM papers are historically some of the shortest. Yes. And then it sounds like yours leaned more towards like almost in the social sciences realm. How I'm curious, how long was your was Yeah, your I'm frustrated by it because it was 79 pages. It was 79 <laughs> pages, but it was one page. <gasps> I know, it was so pages. close to being 80 pages. Oh my goodness. <laughs> But that's also with 30 pages of appendices. Ah, so <laughs> I see. It was about 50 pages of writing. Yeah. Wow. That is really impressive. Thank you. It was a big chunk. What ended up being like the outcome of your project? So you mentioned you might continue your work and that can be like a personal outcome or something that you felt was like a conclusion that you drew from your data. Yeah. The biggest conclusions that we got from the data so far is that their teachers, especially chemistry teachers, because that was my focus, are interested in teaching climate change. And they do it in various ways specific to the context of their schools. So folks who are teaching at a like really conservative school might not talk about climate change specifically, but use climate change phenomena in the world, so like sea level rise mm-hmm. or like the greenhouse effect to explain chemistry concepts. So like combustion reactions, mm-hmm. right, is the burning of carbon and carbon dioxide and water are the uh, results of kind of the combustion. Mm-hmm. And so that can be used to explain like how carbon dioxide gets in the atmosphere, things like that. The way that the chemistry teachers mostly talk about climate change is through examples and kind of incorporating it into their classes. Mm-hmm. The other thing we found out from it was kind of that Teachers have overarching goals to change their curricula, Mm -hmm. but there are a lot of barriers and various reasons to why they haven't or are trying to. And so there's a lot of kind of variation on how teachers do it. But the biggest thing, it's kind of, there's no battle to fight on getting the teachers on board Mm -hmm. to teaching climate change. There's some issues to like the actual doing of it, which is it's a good thing to hear that the teachers want to do it, essentially. Mm-hmm. The next steps, the kind of things that I'm, I'm looking to probably do this summer, I collected class artifacts, so like syllabi, lesson plans, problem sets, essentially things like that, that I will analyze to see how they actually do it, kind of get rid of the, I'm going to just call it interview bias. Mm-hmm. They gave their own answers for how they teach climate change. 
And so if I read the kind of non-biased mm-hmm. papers on how they actually, the pedag- pedagogical approach to how they do it, I'll kind of get more information on, on how it actually gets talked. Yeah, that's really awesome. How has like theseising impacted your career choices moving forward? Mm. Like you said, you're interested in being a chemistry teacher. After this, are you like, no, too many logistical barriers? Or are you like, actually, this is the best thing? Yeah, I, I think I am more interested in being a teacher after it because I know some of the issues and how to overcome them already. Mm. <laughs> and and I can look at it from a different lens of kind of like, okay, like I can see I can see the barriers <laughs> that are in front of me and I can maybe help other teachers to overcome those barriers or point them in the right direction of resources and things like that. First though, I, I do mm-hmm. feel like a strong urge to one take a break <laughs> from college education or anything this for the next year or so. Yes. And then after that, I do like feel very strong urge to work somehow in the environmental sector. I worked at a solar energy nonprofit last summer. So either working there again Whoa, or like cool. education thing, not totally sure on what that, that would be, mm-hmm. but yeah, that's kind of the goal. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, all those experiences will just make you a better teacher in the long run. Like, For sure. Yeah. Every single thing you do goes into to how you're teaching and what, what experiences you can share with kids. So that sounds like a really awesome plan for the next couple yeah, of years. Thank you. Do you have any advice for maybe any readies that might be starting out their journey or or juniors who are looking at next year thesis saying? Yeah. I mean, I feel like this was the advice that I got and I was like, okay, yeah, sure. Like, I'll be fine. <laughs> and it really, it is easiest if you do it in small chunks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you got to give yourself deadlines so that you will do those small chunks and you don't have to write your whole thesis in April. <laughs> so it really, it really is, at least the way it really worked for me. My advisor was great on like making sure I had deadlines and was able to kind of be like, okay, I think you should have these deadlines at these times. Mm-hmm. And then I would do the work of, of, you know, writing and doing the research and stuff like that, but making sure you kind of hold yourself accountable and you don't Mm -hmm. like, okay, like I, you know, don't really need this first draft due right now. Like a couple (laughs) of weeks from now, fine. No, it really, it'll make your last couple of weeks a lot easier if you do the work first, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which again is, (laughs) I feel like all the seniors say that when I was kind of hearing their advice on it, but I, If everyone is saying it, it must be important. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, no. Whenever you're you're thinking of procrastinating, just imagine how future Ren Fair you is going to feel. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. That is a good thing to think about as well. Well, thank you so much for coming on our little podcast. Of course. Yeah, I had a great time. Yeah, best of luck for your future plans and beyond. Thank you. You as well. Thanks so much, Karen. If every teacher was as concerned with teaching climate change as you were, Maybe admitting that our planet's getting hotter wouldn't be so difficult for some people. I hope you'll join us again to hear more from students and alumni about what it means to burn your draft. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe, check out our Twitter and Facebook pages, and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Burn Your Draft is a production of Reed College and the Center for Life Beyond Reed, created jointly by students, alumni, and staff. This episode was produced and engineered by me, Reed College student Albert Corellis. Your lovely host today was Reed student Amelie Andreas. 
Our executive producer is Seth Paskin, class of 1990, with technical advising from Joe Janiga. Our project manager is Nate Martin, staff member in class of 2016. Music by Jack Salvucci, class of 2020, and podcast art by alumni Henry Gotchlik and Lillian Pham. This podcast was made possible by a gift from Seth Paskin.